Everyone stay tuned after this episode for a special bonus feature in your podcast feed. Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts, Saranth Odinson and Jim Two Snakes, talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late-night conversations by real-life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? When the waters were so mighty as to reach the mountains high, and it seemed that all creation surely was doomed to die, came the turtle to our rescue, brought us safely unto land, for the Manadu had sent him, now we're called the Turtle Clan. The wolf band comes from children, whom a she-wolf nursed with care, and thus restored the children, who were given up in despair. Her wailing brought the hunters to the babies where they lay, so a band among the people is the wolf clan today. When the tribe was once in danger, a wild turkey gave alarm, and the warriors met the foemen with the fury of a storm. To a maiden in a vision did the turkey show the plan, and we call all her descendants to this day the Turkey Clan. Welcome everybody to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 21. I am Jim Two Snakes, joined as always by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How's it going tonight, Sarenth? Very well. How are you? Good, good. Uh, that poem, by the way, was called... Uh, the Clans, it's by Richard Clamett Adams, who was a poet who died in 1921, uh, but in his biography, he was born in Kansas in 1864, and for over 20 years, he legally represented the members of the Delaware tribe in Washington, D.C. Beautiful. Thank yeah, you. yeah. I thought that was a nice one. Um so yeah, I'm, I'm everybody, I, I hope um, you enjoyed that last episode, the, the double whammy there that science fiction double feature but i do want to note that i know some people had problems with it via um listening via the anchor app because some of the audio didn't quite process correctly now i i seem to work well on other apps when i tried it but i have reprocessed that audio so if for some reason all you heard was our usual ending music um go back and take a listen and see if it comes out better for you this time yeah, if nothing else, we might have to split that up into two separate podcasts. If it's <laughs> we just might too be long, overwhelming too long. the Anchor app with that one. <laughs> That'd be a first. Yeah, really. But tonight's episode, we're only going to be running about an hour or so. So everybody kind of like makes up the difference because we have no format. See, this is, <laughs> we just do what we want to do. <laughs> yeah, and the beauty of the format is we get to bring on whatever guests we want and whatever our interests happen to be. And for this one, we uh, brought on Angelica from the Skith Blathmere from thelongship.net and had a wonderful interview. I was very happy to have Gunny on. Yep. Yeah, Gunny, the uh, Gunsmile is, is the online handle that Angelica uses. And, and um, 
lot of really good conversation about getting into heathenry and, and the website that she has built, essentially, that allows people to really dig into the very foundational basics of how to get started. So we thought it was a valuable resource that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, and, you know, it was such a challenge because I'm thinking, you know, 11 some odd years ago, when I first became a Northern tradition pagan and heathen, there was so little out there. There was maybe Essential Lost True by Diana Paxson and one or two other books, uh, mm-hmm. the, the book by the trough and uh, one of Swade and Odening's books. And that was about it. And there was a real lack of material out. So, you know, I'm very happy that the current generation of heathens has a really accessible, useful resource that centers on devotion and the hearth. Yeah, so it's, it's it, it very is really happy. cool. It was a nice interview, too. We covered a lot of her background and how she got into this path. And just we, we did our usual wander about all over the countryside. But there's a lot of really good information in there. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to folks listening to this and definitely utilizing the resources that she has put so much time and effort <laughs> into bringing together from all these different sources. Hey, thinking of resources, Sarenth, I, I know you have still been working a ton of overtime. You are, are, I mean, working so many damn hours, and that's why you actually weren't around for the intro of the last show. But um, I know you had something that you wanted to say about maintaining a practice or or how people should think about their practices when they're really busy like that. And I think it's an important topic to bring up. Why don't you talk about that a little? Yeah, um, I pride myself on on doing regular offerings. You know, um, it was something that w- I used to bring up in the Skith Blast in your forum and on personal one-on-one encounters about, well, we'd have one day for the gods, one day for the spirits, one day for the ancestors, and I'd go gods, ancestors, spirits, boom, 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 one day after the other. I started working all this overtime. I, I, I'm shot for <laughs> energy most of the time. You know, when you're working... 30, 40 hours of overtime on top of your regular 40, you know, and you're, you're working two thirds out of every week. You know, you've, you've got to really pare down your devotional practices because your body's like, Nope, you, you, you cannot do that today. Um, and I, I think it has caused me to really look at my practice and go, what are the bare bone essentials? The mm-hmm. bare bone essentials are prayer, uh, cleansing, um, shielding grounding centering and the cultists around the hearth and so um fitting that in wherever is possible is the big thing so one of the things that um i've done in our family is i've relied more on my uh, my wife and our young son of 12 years to do more of the lifting as far Mm -hmm. as the devotional practice in the home goes and i'll make offerings and prayers while i'm at work um, so I'll take things with me. Like I'll take small devotional objects. My wallet is full of them. Uh, I also, <laughs> He's not kidding folks. <laughs> if anyone's seen the old episode of Seinfeld where Costanza had his wallet, absolutely full. That is Saren's wallet right there. You're not wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got everything for representatives of ancestors, gods, uh, a couple of different talismans in there. Um, I think I've got a medallion of St. Francis Day of CC for my Catholic ancestors and for St. Francis. So, um, yeah, my uh, my everyday carry, if you will, for, for my shaman and spiritual kit is as much as I can 
load into as small a space as possible, especially because I'm going into a secure environment and this isn't leaving my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I do is I bring a stack of prayer cards with me. Um, Galena Graskova has a wealth of prayer cards and I have a bunch of them. And uh, there are a couple more that I need to pick up. But what I'll do is while I'm on break or while I'm on lunch, I'll sit with uh, one or two or maybe the whole spread out and I'll share a drink mm-hmm. or I'll share some food. Um, and, and that sharing is really simple. I'll just cleanse with some simple three breaths in, three breaths out, ground and center using the tree meditation that is so popular because uh, I really connect with that through Yggdrasil. And then uh, from there, I just make small prayers and the offering is I share the food with them. Those prayer cards are really nice too. I know I've got a few of them that for some of the the deities, that's the only representation I have on an altar right now is those prayer cards. But they're nice because I can tuck them in my journal, my bullet journal with me. Like my bullet journals that I buy, they've got a little pocket in the back of them. And there's a few of them that are tucked right in there. So I can take them with and like if I'm meditating on something to do with that God during the day, I can then write some notes or if not, just tuck it right back in that pocket and keep going. That's really awesome. I found that uh, as I've as I've gone along, I really need to get like a hard case or something for mm-hmm. them because soft cases just don't do it for right. as much jostling around my bag. But I mean, uh, if you need like some specialty stuff, like if you need a container of salt, um, salt's ubiquitous now. I mean, it didn't used to be back in the day, but nowadays, you know, you can find salt anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I have a little um, those carry on bags for like shampoo and stuff. And so I just put sacred herbs in one of them and uh, salt in another and um, like kernips, which is like <laughs> blessed water in the Greek way, in another one. So you got these little these little carry-on case and just throw it in isn't the backpack it, and it's good to go. Isn't it amazing what we take for granted? I know I'm reading a book right now, um, part of the Hangman's Daughter series, and the current book is dealing with some people who are smuggling salt and, you know, because it was like so amazing back then to have salt that what, you know, and it was such a valuable commodity that the, uh, that the, the government's really taxed it heavily. And so smuggling, it was quite wealth, a way to get wealthy for some of the poorer class. And it was, I don't know, it was kind of an amazing thing to go salt really, you know, like when you read about smugglers in a, in a book, you know, even some of the, the magic books that are you know, popular now, you know, you're thinking of gold or things like that, but just simple salt was kind of amazing to me. And it would, it even pointed out in that novel that the whole reason Bavaria is where it is in, is, uh, in some of the powers of the day was because of where it lie along a salt trade route. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, cause, uh, one of the documentaries that my wife turned me on to Silverleaf turned me on to a documentary series called, uh, I think it was the, the Tudor farm BBC series. Mm-hmm. And they, one of the things they did was they showed how they got salt out of salt water. And one of the ways they did was, uh, I think by heating up lead or something and then they pitch it in there and the salt would separate from the water. But you, you're talking about a contaminated source and they used to, use this for everything right. salting their meat salting i mean this is going in their mouths on their hands i mean <laughs> the the lengths they're going to yep the if you get if you get a chance i think you'd really enjoy that series too by the way it, it's a uh, um the the author's name is oliver 
uh, and it's a German name, so I'm going to slaughter it here, but Potsich, uh, or Posich, uh, it's, it's, um, basically based on some of, he, he started digging into his family's, uh, lineage and genealogy and found that way back in the day there was hangman in his family. So then he just started to write it and it's all, it's all based in ancient, uh, uh, you know, Germany and Bavaria and, and they're, uh, a family without honor because he's a hangman. And so all the family has no honor and, and it's really details the, the, the class system and, and the church, but all of them are murder mysteries as well. So it's really fascinating. Oh, this is really cool. So this is a historical fiction series. Yeah. 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 And it it is really well done too. And because he's the, he's the hangman, he and his daughter, both they, uh, they, um, they're the people that come, people come to for the poor come to for healing, you know, cause they make all the herbs and salves and everything else. But at the same point in time, you know, like he'll do things like, Oh, this is a lock of hair from a man I hanged and that's supposed to keep thieves away from your home. But he knows it's superstition, but nice. at the same point in time, money is money when you're poor, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a kind of a fascinating look back into, you know, and obviously it's fiction. So things are, are, sometimes loose around the edges, but I think this author's done his research really well. It's a very entertaining series. Cool. I hope to put the uh, link to the book in the show notes. Cause I'm going to have to check that out too. Yeah. Yeah. I've enjoyed it a lot. Excellent. But I, I think that gets to the, the core of, of, you know, money is money and you got to do what you got to do to survive. Mm, I think yeah. that really, in terms of the practice, when you're, when you're this under the gun, you know, anything you can do is a victory. Really? Right. Well, and I mean, I guess the, the thing that I pulled out of there is the, it's not so much what sometimes the offering is, it's how much of a sacrifice was it really for you and how much effort did you put into it? You know, you're dragging a salt packet into work with you. The effort of taking the salt isn't that much because, you know, salt is everywhere and it's, it's pretty easy to find in our society. But the fact that you're taking it in, even though you're in like lockdown situations and you're taking time to make the offerings. It's the effort, even if it's only a few minutes worth of effort as compared to what your normal practice might be, that has a significance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, especially when it comes to something as to, as precious in our workplace as coffee, mm-hmm. <laughs> coffee in our workplace is really, truly an offering because half the time the stuff goes away and right. you can't find it. <laughs> Well, you like, know, you know, we, we've talked creamer. before about the people that sometimes you're in a really bad situation. You're very poor. All you've got to offer is maybe a, a glass of water. But if you've spent 10 minutes praying over that water, that's some pretty amazing water. Absolutely. Right. It's the it's um, but that's part of the sacrifice because you you're being conscious of of the time that you spent to make those prayers and the effort that you're putting into it. And you're really trying to bring in your focus and not let it wander around, really make it a meaningful prayer. And that, that's still a huge offering. Yeah. And, and even as ubiquitous as I've mentioned, salt is, if you really take into account how much work your ancestors did to really make salt that available and really think back. And um, it's a similar technique to with when you're working with animals that you're eating, you know, think back to where that animal came from, how it died and where it might've come from and all that as life cycle mm-hmm. and that honoring process. You can do that with salt too. 
Right. Well, and even this time of year, right? Like, you know, we, we like to decorate our altars with flowers and that sort of thing. Maybe you don't have the money for a nice bouquet of flowers, but if you've spent your only 20 minutes of lunchtime gathering dandelions from around the yard and you put that in a nice little little cup or something, that's a hell of an offering. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that we do ourselves and our, our holy powers a disservice when we demean the meaning of our offerings mm-hmm. because especially when you're talking about situations where times are tough, that is where it's the hardest to want to make offerings and to keep your devotional space. But it was where your some of your best work, can, I can guarantee you, some of your best work will come out of those crunch periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm saying this as much to the audience as I am to myself because <laughs> I'm in the middle of crunch period hardcore right now. <laughs> well, even as many years as you and I do it, we beat ourselves up a little bit ourselves. We have to stop and remember ourselves sometimes that this is what's going on right now. And these are the offerings that I can make. And this is the work that I have time and energy to do. And, and uh, you know, even as many years as we've been doing it, uh, don't don't put us up on a pedestal, folks, because we deal with the same stuff. Yeah, all, all the shadow work that we talk about, all this rough and ready stuff that we've talked people through mm-hmm. we the only reason we can do this work effectively is because we got put through it and we're getting put through it again and again <laughs> during times in our lives right right yeah the only way that i can be an effective spirit worker is having done the work and sometimes the work means just putting your shoulders down and barreling through whatever crap life happens to be dealing with you at the moment and yeah. sometimes that's it's well, what's what's the most important thing I can do right now and <laughs> exactly. being OK with that? Exactly. I, uh, you know, it's it's just little things. It really is like I. Uh, it's funny. I, I I want to tell you about I finally I finally got some mugwort in the earth this last this last week. Oh, so, yeah, I, I was taking the I, I got some mugwort spontaneous decision decided I want some of my own mugwort. So I got it from seeds so I could see them poking up out of the soil. And I was spending every single day um, I, I would go to them and, you know, here's this empty soil. And I was just breathing on it, sharing my breath with it. I'm like, I want to have a really good connection with you. So we do really good cleansings together and seeing those little greens sprout up. But then the poor little poor little devils our basement flooded with all the spring water so i went down one morning and they were literally floating around <laughs> the fort oh banks. no <laughs> but uh, i got them out in the yard now i made a space for them and it still seems to be sprouting really well but yeah telling you what it's uh but i, I think we'll do some really good cleansing with that mugwort uh yeah especially since they survived all that yeah <laughs> If they can't help people get through trials, I don't know what they can help people get through. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it was a, it's so good to finally start having in our area the, the more spring weather type rolling in because, man, that really gives a little boost to the optimism and the like, all right, we can get through this. We can do this. As tired as yeah. I am, as much as going on as I can get through this, I can get through this. Yeah, being able to see the sun now when I was able to leave work yesterday, I was like... <sighs> Oh, that's what Suna looks like. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Those uh, those overnight shifts during the winter, it's like, yeah, you, oh, you all of a sudden have sympathy for those people that live in certain areas of Alaska, right? Where it's like, yeah, sun, yeah. what's that? 
it, you know, it really was weird sometimes. I'd, I'd come home and I wouldn't see the sun at all for days. And then I'd said, come home on my Tuesday or something. And I'd be like, oh, crap. That's what she looks like. Okay. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it gets strange sometimes, doesn't it? It does. It does. And, and we still have rain. Like we just had a huge storm blow through again. And so I'm, I'm getting to see a different side of Michigan that I didn't take note of the last time we had a bunch of barreling storms through like this. Because mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been a while since we've had downpour after downpour like this. Mm-hmm. And it's a different side of Michigan because you're starting to really see the swampy aspects around here come out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Really, instead of that Yorthy vibe, you get kind of that Nerthus vibe. And it's a different feel to the, to the earth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, swampy vibe. Yeah, you got that right. Like I said, oh. flooded basement. That was me. So it felt really swampy for a while. Is everything okay? Have oh yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, like I said, it's a. I've told you before. It's a. It's a hundred year old house, and the basement is always flooded every spring, as far back as anyone can remember. So we all know nothing important goes down there. Fair, but I figured I'd ask. <laughs> we. Uh, you know, I, I counted myself lucky because I discovered the flooding before it got up to the furnace or the hot water heater. My grandmother said when she was young, there was some springs and it was before there was any gas or electricity in the house. So they didn't have to worry about it. Um, but the, that, that cellar would become like a swimming pool. of water would just get so deep in there. Holy crap. <laughs> Michigan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the version of michigan basements where you're from is like their uh their in-ground pools huh yeah something like that right <laughs> so oh. well is there anything else you want to catch up anybody on before we we head off into our interview gosh you know we've got so much to catch up on i think we're gonna have to have a separate catch-up episode because <laughs> there's been so much going on we've I mean, said that been... we've said that for about a month and a half now you realize yeah, it's, it's going to be time pretty soon. Hey, I, that, so. I know one thing that we can point out to people. Yeah, go for it. So um, coming up fairly soon, only a little over a month away now, we'll be at Michigan Pagan Fest again. And Sarenth and I, as usual, will be tending the sacred fire. And the podcast that we shared time with recently, Three Pagans and a Cat, they're going to be broadcasting live that entire weekend. So you're going to hear Sarenth and I on that broadcast as well. And hopefully we'll have some time to get caught up on what we've been doing and things going on there as well. That would be really awesome. I'm I looking know, forward to I'm it. I'm going to crash their area as often as I possibly can. Everybody, they're going to get sick of me. They're going to kick me <laughs> off. They're going to say, oh God, two snakes is back. Get him out of here. Hey, you guys, uh, you guys want an interview? <laughs> No, go away. No, Gwen Carr, look, I brought puppets. <laughs> it is a YouTube it is gonna be a YouTube broadcast, you guys, so Oh you might get to see the puppet show and everything, so Yes, do it. <laughs> All right. Well, Sarah, we'll get we'll get caught up again some other time then and uh Everybody, we're going to turn you over to the interview with Angelica, a.k.a. Gunsmile, where we're going to talk about the longship. And a warm welcome to you, Angelica. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> so, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Sarah. 
uh, uh, <laughs> see, look what we did. We're terrible people. Uh, um, we were both looking today, and, and I was really perver- uh, uh, perusing around the website, uh, The Longship, which is a really amazing website. You have done some fantastic work there, thelongship.net, for people who are, who are interested. And what I'm finding really fascinating is it's, the way you have it laid out with all the articles about heathenry, it's so open and inviting, and it's a very welcoming and... Uh, uh, all-encompassing message. It seems like there's a lot of inclusivity, and it, I, I really like what you've done. Thank you so much. It was a lot of hard work, and I'm glad that it's paying off. Are you getting a so, lot of attention from it? Sorry, Sarah. I'll, I'll back off here a second. <laughs> um, I really don't know how to quantify that. I mean, okay. I use Google Analytics to look at my metrics, but compared to other websites such as um, – uh, I don't know off the top of my head, like um, Hu- uh, Hugen Hoff or um, any Facebook group. Um, I, I really don't know what their metrics look like. So I get people who say it's great. I get messages occasionally saying thank you. So I, it's doing well <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's really cool because um, I, I, I have not come across a website quite like this, either this well put together or this user-friendly like because i remember back when i was first a baby heathen and everything was angel fire pages and rotating oh, yeah. gifts <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> good old 90s so well, thank you yeah i i really wanted to make the the layout modern because like you uh, a lot of the pagan websites that i visited um they just uh were outdated for the you know 2010s So what all went into bringing this website together? Because you've got a lot of moving parts with this. You've got an about page, you've got basics, hearth cult, an FAQ, and you've also got resources and a blog. So like I said, it was a lot of hard work. It took over, uh, it took about a year for me to really put it together in, t- in a state where I could release it live. Mm-hmm. Um, it started off with the idea that was basically, you know, it sucks that there's no free online resource for beginner heathens. I was at the time reading a lot of beginner books. Um, and you know, I have the privilege of being able to pay for basically anything, any resource that I would like, even a $40 textbook if I really wanted to. But I know a lot of people don't have that option. Free PDFs are online, yeah, but it's kind of hit or miss. So I wanted to basically collect everything that a beginner heathen I thought should know about like the core fundamentals of heathenry in a place that was easily accessible, uh, user-friendly, and in a language that wasn't like academic or esoteric. Mm-hmm. So that was my um, that was my motivation for creating Longship in the first place. I, I do like the uh, some of the articles on there, even under the basics tab, because talking about the inner and outer yard and the uh, gifting cycle, th- that page is really great. I like what you did with the verbiage on that one. Go to it real quick. The uh, how you have the the gifting cycle basics and then the more advanced information. That's like, wow, that is really neat. I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere else. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I feel like the concepts, the base concepts of heathenry can be very complicated for someone who's just starting out because first of all, a lot of heathens come from either an atheistic or Christian background. And 
even just coming from that into paganism in general can be very difficult because it's a whole worldview shift, you know. Um, and then heathenry itself has some very specific vocabulary, like luck is something means something completely different in a heathen context than it does in a modern context. And it took a it took a while for me to write out these definitions and explanations in a way that not only was bite sized but kind of summarize the core of the ideas without any sort of loss of complexity. That was one thing that I, I found really rough. Like one of the textbooks that I was pointed to very early on and I only recently got to read in the last couple of years was Gronbeck, uh, Culture of the Teutons, Volume oh, 1 yeah. and 2. That's oh, a yeah. slog. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> It's big. It's it's thicker than a Bible, and the language is more specialized and obscure. It's very archaic, isn't it? Oh, it's it's a bitch to get through. <laughs> <laughs> I I attempted to slog through Gronbeck's book as well. I got through about nine chapters, and I just gave up. <laughs> That's totally fair. Well, th- to be honest, there's times even the the. You know, I remember, granted, it's been a while since I sat down with him, but uh, that was probably high school since the last time I really dove into him. But, I mean, even the Eddas themselves can be quite a slog. And it's like, what's the important information? What's not? How do I apply it? What What isn't relevant at all and was just came through a Christian lens, all this other stuff? I mean, there's a lot of material out there if you're more of an academic mindset. But um, for me, I'm a, my learning style has a lot to do with short articles, conversations, especially I learn a lot from. So it, it helps to have a place where a lot of this is condensed down. Yeah, I agree. And if you'll notice, um, if, if you check the resources, um, like the recommended reading, the edits I put as advanced reading because, yeah. because in my opinion, and like I, a lot of the things I'll say here is just my opinion as a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> the Eddas can be really complicated for someone who's just starting out in heathenry. Uh, there's no understanding, uh, unless they study this academically, there's no real um, understanding of the context that of, of the time period when the Eddas were written or uh, any of the ancient Germanic culture. So when you're just diving into the Eddas, it's like, what is happening? Yeah. Like, what am <laughs> exactly. I supposed to be taking from it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm right in that boat because the first thing when I first came to Heathenry that I kept finding over and over and over again, whether it was on the forums or whether it was um, on people's, uh, well, back then it was Live Journal, it was, yeah, go go read the edits. Okay, sure, I'll read these and how the hell am I going to decipher them? Right. And usually when people say read the edits, that's it. They don't say like what you're supposed to be looking for. Or, or how to read them, or even if there's in a specific order to read them, or anything like that. So, yeah, it, it can be rough for a new heathen. Well, especially when, when they're frequently, you know, they're touted as, it's the lore, and it's like a capital <laughs> L. <laughs> and you're like, cool, so these are religious instruction manuals? What? No, no, it's po- poetry. It's poetry. That's about it. It's poetry or it's prose. Good luck. <laughs> More or less, yeah. So can I go ahead and ask, I, I, how'd you get started uh, or, or making, made the decision to, to start this website and, and condense all this material down? Well, like I said, I was lamenting that there's no like one-stop shop for mm-hmm. beginner heathens. And I come, um, heathenry is not my first foray into paganism. I was pagan before heathenry and um, specifically I was comedic. So 
there were a lot of online free resources, usually through people's blogs, uh, about how to get started in chemitism. Um, the Twisted Rope is one that I recommend frequently. Um, and there really wasn't one for heathens. Uh, a lot of the knowledge for beginner heathens was stored in like little Facebook groups or subreddits, you know, that may or may not have been super clicky, you know. So um, I wanted to make this one-stop shop in a way, the similar way that there are one-stop shops for like, you know, Hellenism or Kematism. Um, and a lot of it, I realized that I would have to condense it down to the very basics, not even going into holidays too much or the gods too much, because you could, you could spend days just talking about those topics. Easily. Yeah. Easily. It's amazing. I mean, there's just, I mean, you look at the, the, and even in the last few years, the growth of information, just about a few of them, like, you know, how much more information is out there now about Odin and Loki, for example, than there was even five years ago. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And also I had the interesting situation of heathenry not being specifically Norse, you know, because mm -hmm. there's Anglo-Saxon, there's Old Saxon, there's Frisian, everything under the continental umbrella. Um, and everyone knows about Norse heathenry. True. Well, I mean, you know, everyone who looks into it. And I didn't want a one-stop shop to specifically cater to one region or or a path than another. Um, so, like I said, I wanted to distill heathenry basics into just, just what is fundamental? What do you need to know in order to actually consider yourself heathen? And, and it took a lot of um, reading through books and stuff, basically, the, the beginner books, to, to distill that into a, a small list. Mm -hmm. So you said you came at this from a, a comedic background. What, what was your, your origin? What kind of, how is, how did you get here? Let's, let's condense it down that way, my conversation. Sure. It's a long story. So yeah, I'll try wait. to make it very short. <laughs> uh, so, Take all the time you need. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up Roman Catholic. Um, and I went to Catholic school basically from when, when I was six years old to when I was 13. And um, at the time, you know, when you're 13, you start questioning everything. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> so um, at about that time, I basically realized that I was being forced into Catholicism because it, it was what, you know, my parents raised me as and they wanted to obviously look out for me. But it wasn't a religion that answered all of my questions. And at the time, I was on LiveJournal, and uh, I discovered paganism through, through that, uh, the various communities there. I was really into Egyptian mythology as a child. I would watch these documentaries about mummies, and I was terrified of mummies, but they were at the same time, like, really fascinating. I didn't know why. Right. <laughs> and um, since uh, I was especially interested in mummies, Anubis was my favorite Egyptian god, uh, ever since I was a little girl. And when I realized that paganism was a thing based on like what I was seeing in these online communities, I decided to Google Anubis, like basically search for Anubis. And I found out that, wow, people like actually still pray to him. What? It was <laughs> phenomenal. Like my, my whole world opened up in front of me and I decided, you know what, if people can pray to Anubis, I'll pray to Anubis. That was 13 year old me's logic. <laughs> you are a brave soul searching for Anubis <laughs> on the internet. I'm just saying, especially on a Google search. 
<laughs> well, uh, I guess I was lucky in that sense. Um, and you know, <laughs> so I go into my high school years thinking, all right, I'm praying to Anubis now because, you know, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, but when you're a teenager, you don't really think about religion a lot unless you're, you know, unless it's a very specific uh, interest of yours. But um, it took me until college to really start practicing paganism. And since I was into Anubis at the time, I thought I'm going to be comedic. And I was comedic for a little bit. I, I learned a lot. I studied a lot. I practiced a lot. But eventually I left it because of various factors. Um, I mean, I can get into that if, if you want, but I left sure. I mean, I, I actually would be kind of curious. What okay. Led you... All right. Well, um, a lot of it was the fact that Kematism has a very specific focus on the Nile. The Nile is mm -hmm. hugely important um, to theology in, in Kemetic theology. And being that I don't live anywhere uh, that relies heavily on a large river, I was just, I felt such a huge disconnect. Sure. I, wanted, I completely um, understand that. Yeah. And not only that, but it's a desert region, right? Uh, Egypt. So there are no gods of snow, basically. No <laughs> gods really of the ocean. So I live on the East Coast where there's a huge ocean and it snows here. And I just felt like I couldn't connect with the gods of Egypt as well either because of that, like that. I don't know why the climate was so important to me, but um, it just didn't make chemism work for me, even though I'd been practicing it for four years. So that's more or less why I decided to um, stop practicing chemism and look into something else. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I know in my own my own practice, uh, it's very the, the the natives in South America. It's very mountain based for obvious reasons. But here I am in Michigan, and and so a lot of my practice, I've had to switch it around to uh, being lake centered in my practices, and that can be. I mean, it's you know we're all connected to the land spirits, and and it's all really connected to our spirituality in a lot of really important ways. So it it makes sense to me why in the, in an area with snow and ice and, and a big ocean, why that might not have resonated as much as you wanted it to. Yeah. And I, I think if I had worked a little harder, I could have made it work, mm -hmm. but I was young, you know, and still trying to get my feet under me with regards to paganism in my practice. Um, and so I guess it just was the easiest solution at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> So you're no longer comedic, but you are still polytheist. So did you just drop worship of Anubis at that point? No, actually, I my worship of Anubis is the only thing I kept. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because here's another long story that I'm going to shorten real real fast here. Um, okay, good luck. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> about um, while well, I was still comedic, I think it was like 2012 or something. Uh, I got my first tattoo. And uh, I had been thinking about this tattoo for a long time, uh, all throughout high school, all throughout college, but I kept giving myself excuses like, oh, you know, your parents are going to get mad or, oh, like you don't have the money for a tattoo. All legitimate excuses. But finally, I realized I've graduated. I have a job. My parents can't tell me what to do. I'm going to get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, Anubis's name in hieroglyphs on my on my like inner leg near my ankle. Um, and... It did not occur to me until a couple of years later how significant that was um, 
to have the name of a god on your body. Uh, basically, I've owed myself to Anubis at this point, and I can't get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Thanks. I know, right? Um, but it's fine. I've accepted it, and I've accepted all that it entails. Um, and even if I hadn't done that, you know, Anubis was a very important part of my mm. growth as a as a child, you know, and as also as a pagan. Um, he really was what introduced me to paganism in the first place because of that Google search. So he has a very important meaning for me, and uh, our relationship is significant even without the the devotion aspect of it. Um, so for a while there, actually, after I left Kematism, I was just an Anubis devotee. Like I, he was the only God I, I worshiped and prayed to, and it was fine. And I think it, since you, um, we discussed earlier before the call, we wanted to touch on death midwifery. Um, that time period where I only worshiped Anubis was what allowed me to study death mm. and the death culture in the West. And which is fascinating because, you know, death God, suddenly here I am being a death midwife. And, <laughs> you know, you could almost say that it, it was determined since that time when I was 13 years old. But depends on what you believe. I can see that. <laughs> um, you know, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm reflecting on my own journey with Anubis. And it's uh, in some ways, it's very similar. Um especially with the, the uh, going into just working with him alone in your transition period. And then suddenly the, the reins you had around your life are suddenly out of your hands and it's in a whole new ball game. Yeah. In, in hindsight, like I could totally see how he has had his hands in my lifeline for a long time. Um, and I think the study of death that, took place during that transition period between chematism and heathenry um, really emphasized that for me. So, uh, yeah, Sarenth had his own little spin through the the fields of mortuary for a while there, so not quite doing the same thing as you, but it is interesting that, uh, I, I don't know, it seems like this is a requirement at some <laughs> point in time, at some level. Who knows? I mean, who knows what the gods have in mind? <laughs> And from there, how did you get more into heathenry? Well, um, it was kind of by accident. Um, I was, at the time, thinking about maybe I should cultivate, like, a worship of death gods in, in general. Not just Anubis, but, like, Persephone and whoever else might be out there. So I, uh, I was doing research, basically, and I discovered, uh, I learned about Freya. And I was like, okay, cool. That that seems neat. I'm going to read more about her. And I, and I did. And I tried to make offerings to her. And I thought, you know, this is cool. Heathenry seems neat. I like the Vikings. I'm watching that TV show. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. It was the TV show that really got me into it, guys. No, uh, but... <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I was reading more and more. And I really liked the idea of the heathen goddesses, you know, Frigg and Freya and uh, Ithun and all of that um, didn't really seem interested in the gods, but I was still studying, still trying to understand what heathenry was all about when my friend said, hey, I know you're studying heathenry. I think you should look into the god Tyr and his myths. And I was like, okay, I've never heard of this god before, so I will. And I read it and I'm super mad at my friend about it still. Not really mad, but... Um, <laughs> I, I really, the story of 
uh, theater losing his hand to Fenrir was really uh, resonant with me because it's all about, you know, oaths and and loyalty and keeping your word and all of that really heavy stuff um, that that really I, I consider myself a pretty loyal friend. Keeping oaths is very important to me. Um, and so I kind of felt like a connection there that I wasn't feeling with Freya. Um, and ever since then, I just, you know, studied more and more, shifted my focus from Freya to Tyr. And I guess here I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. Do you think, um, now I know as your background that you, you say that you're in a, a IT analyst and you're working for a big company. Does that, does that aspect of that, that, analytical sort of these are the laws and the rules sort of thing does that what appeals to you you think that's why you have a good relationship with tier or how how what would you say your relationship is like um it's definitely less about the thing and the laws mm-hmm. um and more about uh duty and mm. uh oath keeping and gotcha. um that sort of thing i think that uh a lot of people do get into a relationship with tier because of laws and justice. Um, but for me, it's definitely, um, it's definitely all about keeping your word and, um, being loyal to those that you've pledged to be loyal to, um, and, and doing your utmost to do your duty. So what is your, uh, what kind of daily practices and that sort of thing do you do? Or do you have a lot of altars? Do you spend a lot of time doing that sort of work? Or, um, cause I know everybody approaches their practices a little bit differently. Sure. Yeah. I, I would, I have two altars. Uh, one is for Anubis specifically because, um, I have this, I have this, uh, idea that if, a if a religion, if the purpose of a religious ritual for, you know, of, of giving offerings is different between one religion and another, the altar should be separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a second altar. That's my, uh, everything else, basically. <laughs> uh, I don't have a lot of space. I live in a very small apartment. So I use a windowsill, and in the center, it's the gods. On the left-hand side of the windowsill is for my ancestors, and on the right-hand side is for, like, the whites, basically. Um, and then in the in the center where the gods are, actually, I've started incorporating um, cultus deorum, or uh, Roman polytheism, into my practice. Oh, neat. And so one half of that center is for the Germanic gods and the other half is, well, it's supposed to be for the Roman gods, whichever <laughs> ones I start to give offerings to. Have you started in that practice yet? Like, is there somebody that's really appealing to you out of that pantheon or that tradition? Yes, actually. Um, and this is going to be completely unsurprising, but it's Mars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, on one side there's Tyr and the other side there's Mars, right? Like, <laughs> uh, but uh, because of my last name actually means son of Mars, and I oh. wanted to, yeah, and oh. I wanted to uh, sort of honor Mars as the patron of my family line, um, and so that's how it started. It's a very different sort of relationship because it's sort of like you know I rec- it's not a, a personal relationship. It's a you know you are the god that has that we have been named after essentially mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, all the generations of my family up until the first of us. So, uh, that's sort of that relationship. <laughs> so, so when people meet you, 
like if if they only know a little bit about you, if they know a little bit about your practice, your cultists, or anything like that, is and, and they're so now they're hearing about war gods and tear and, and Anubis and that sort of thing. Do they expect like, you know, they expect uh, Abby from CSI to show up? You should you be all gothy and 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 that sort of thing? Do you kind of surprise them and catch them off guard a little bit? Um, I, I would say actually it's probably a little mix of both. Okay. Um, because in my everyday life, I do wear a lot of black clothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, it's not because I identify as a, you know, in the, with the Gothic community, but because it's just a very, it matches everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but I also, I have, I, I have an interest in vintage fashion and I like, uh, to play around with, um, you know, uh, clothing and hairstyles and makeup. Uh, from that, like the 40, 50, 40s, 50s, and 60s era. So, uh, yeah, I, I can wear like you know nerdy T-shirts and jeans, but right. um, when I when I go out and meet people, and especially uh, for pagan events, I like to dress up, up a little bit more. Gotcha. And it can I, I stand out in that way. Uh, very, very differently than how other people stand out. <laughs> well, the reason I ask, I'm looking at the profile picture that you have on on the blog on the long ship for your uh, uh, profile. And that's you in the Kennedy Center Hamilton background. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not feeling like war god going on here so but it's a great picture thank you yeah i i chose <laughs> it specifically just... yeah because of that um i like to i wouldn't say i normally like to surprise people uh-huh. um but you know people have multitudes and oh, yeah. just because i worship war gods and death gods doesn't mean that i'm not also like a girly girl who likes to dress up and go to theater you know yep no, actually, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I think that that is sometimes a dynamic that's missing. Like, um, you know, that's one of those things that when people are first coming into heathenry or paganism, you kind of get these hit with these expectations in, and they might be internal expectations or they might be, you know, your very first interactions with the community and how people are dressed and how they act and sort of thing. And you're like, oh, boy, do I fit into this? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, I could probably get on soapbox about that. I already warned Sarah that I might get on soapbox during this interview, but oh, we got plenty of them. Yeah, <laughs> we buy them in bulk. Well, um, I, I totally agree that that is the sentiment that that happens, especially in heathenry, because the first impression that you get from a lot of heathens, because they are Norse heathens, is all oh, Vikings, tough man, you know. Um, and I have spoken with other members of the heathen community who say, like, I don't fit that stereotype. Mm-hmm. I am not a big, blonde, burly dude who could throw an axe. You know, I might be super skinny or I might be gay or I might be, you know, Mexican. Um, do I fit in as a heathen? And you know, I feel like it's our responsibility, no matter what religion you believe in or, or you know, culture you, religious culture you uh, are part of, that to say, yes, you, you do fit in. Because it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters, you know, do you worship the gods? Like, mm-hmm. do you pay them cultus, basically? And, um, and it's not just a heathen thing. Like, you can go to any pagan event and see those stereotypes. And like I said, it's why I I like to dress up when I go to these public events is because I my my fashion sense is more vintage and dressed up, and I want people to see that yeah there you can dress in whatever you know stereotype you want if if you're happy with it 
But you can also look like this. You can also just wear like a nerdy t-shirt and jeans. It's fine. <laughs> Do you think that there's kind of this uh, religious costuming thing that goes on in the heathen community that kind of works against us in that kind of fashion? I think, yes. I think that it happens in the greater pagan community, not just the heathen community. Um, and it's why I actually started the blog series on the longship Heathens and Profile. Because when, you know, you go to the Renaissance Festival, for instance, you'll see a bunch of people dressed in furs and like the tunic. And I'm guilty of this because I also have a Viking <laughs> kit, like a nice long dress and like the jewelry. Uh, and I've gone to the Renaissance Festival in that outfit. <laughs> um, but, you know, the outward perception that uh, the general public develops when they see photos of, um, it's not LARPing, and you know, there's there's yep. reenactors, and then there's actual LARPing, and then there's people who just like to dress up. Um, but strangers, the general public, will just lump us all together. And um, I think that can can be a detriment, I think, to modern paganism, because when you look at Christians or Jews or Muslims, for the most part, they just dress like normal people. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, this is a pagan event. And there's costuming going on. Like, okay, well, is this normal? Like, because that the general public doesn't have an, a greater understanding of, like, what the different pagan religions entail, what they believe, what is actually practiced, they think, okay, so pagans just dress up and drink a lot of mead. And we have to combat that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to combat that as I'm looking at scans of my mead collection. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I love mead too, so it's fine. <laughs> and my two or three horns literally sitting here on my desk. I'll just be over here with me being the stereotypical heathen. There's nothing wrong with that. But... I'm just giving you shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. No, there, there isn't. I also have horns, and I also drink mead. Like, and I, like I said, I dress in a Viking kit when I go to the Renaissance Festival. Do you so. put them on your helmet too? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know I'm a woman? I'm not allowed to fight. Oh, that's right. Oh. We gotta break down those barriers too. We all need to wear horns on our helmets. <laughs> but I think I think you're right, though. I think, uh, with all seriousness, I think those those barriers do need to start coming down, um, and doesn't matter if you dress all in pastels and you're the, you know, a, a tears person or, you know, you're the most cleanly dressed, most professional looking Wall Street people would like look at you in awe and you're a Loki worshiper. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you wear. Honestly, it's <laughs> the relationship you've got with those gods. Exactly. Now, how, how open are you with your career? Because obviously you're, I don't ever have the experience of being interacting with large companies other than them chasing after me for a bill to be paid or something. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious in your corporate environment, how, how open are you and has there been ramifications or blowback because of that? So I am very fortunate to work in a very um, inclusive company. We have um, these diversity and inclusion groups, special interest groups, basically, and um, I'm very proud of them for the initiative that they take in those areas. But religion isn't really one that comes up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think personally, I prefer that because I'm there to mm -hmm. work. Yep. Um, I can and, you know, religion and politics don't really have a place um, 
in in my line of work i, I work in it <laughs> um so <laughs> if if they did something's wrong um <laughs> but um that is to say that uh i don't i don't think i've ever said outright to anyone at work that hey i'm pagan um i do know that there are some people there's a there's a lot of older folks at my workplace who probably would be uncomfortable with that they would probably say okay but probably have their reservations right right that said um i do keep a copy of the havamel on my desk oh neat um yeah (laughs) and i mean it's right there with my tea and everything (laughs) so uh and and it's out there in open we have an open like uh open plan seating instead of cubicles so i mean anyone can come up and see like havamel and then like the you know, a figure of Thor that's on the cover. Um, and I've thought even about bringing in like some of um, some of like little mini figurines of the gods, you know, like carved wooden or resin ones, just as a, a reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but I, I don't feel pressed about it either way. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's not like anybody's putting on a show or that you need to for the general public. I was just kind of curious. I know my interactions with a lot smaller companies has been really generally been pretty positive because people get a chance to know you and and, uh, you know, the concept of of someone being a pagan can be scary to certain people when they've Mm -hmm. never interacted with one. But once they know that, oh, yeah, that person two chairs over that that person's a pagan, all of a sudden it's not as scary anymore and i was just i'm i'm glad to hear that that experience is uh scales up to a degree as well sure i like i said i think my company uh is just really good in that area in general of being inclusive um actually i will say that they recently held um like company events for um chinese new year and there was also diwali the festival of lights um or Maybe I'm mixing up my my Hindu holidays. I'm very sorry if a Hindu is listening to this and I just offended you. Um, But yeah, so they've done those sort of cultural things before. But I think modern paganism is just one of those things that won't get recognized in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To that level for a long time. Right. Well, and I mean, just looking at the demographics and the numbers, that's not hugely shocking. You know, there's not probably in most circumstances going to be a whole a lot of us. But uh, it is good to know nonetheless. Absolutely agreed. So, okay, bringing this right back around to the longship. Uh, <laughs> so, with all of this said, all of this this work and stuff being put into it, um, what is your um, your hope for the longship going forward? Because you've got an amazing amount of articles now. Where do you hope to take it? Because I mean, you've got the beginner stuff. Pretty much on lock, having mm-hmm. read through it. So where's the next step? So actually, um, for a number of reasons, I am going to stop writing articles after July. Um, first of all, my schedule is just so busy, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty much the only one writing. Uh, so in order for me to make room for other projects that I want to do in the future, that's going to have to be on the back burner. However, um, I know that there are people who learn differently than, you know, than just reading straight content. Um, it's easier for them to hear things or to watch a video. So in order to make the Longships content even more accessible, my next plan of action would be to actually do audio recordings of all the content 
and make it available for people with reading, you know, impairments or, or sight impairments. Um, that way they can learn in the way that is best for them. Um, and then maybe in the far future, I'll even do videos, but who knows at that point? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I don't want to think too far ahead. Are you, are you actively looking for other writers at all, or is this going to mostly me remain your kind of passion project? I would be open to other people writing articles for it. In fact, I've said it many times um, in my various communities, like, hey, if you want to be a guest writer for The Long Ship, please let me know. Um, I would love to host any of your writing. But it seems that most people would rather write for their own blogs, which is fine. I totally get it. Like, I would also rather write for my own blog. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, um, there hasn't really been any progress in that sort of area. But, you know, it's okay. I'm not too bummed about it <laughs> you know that does seem to be a common thing with the all aspects of the pagan community is uh, that i've discovered over the years it's really hard to convince people to kind of join the community as opposed to trying to be leaders or strike off on their own it's it's a uh, i think it's something about the mindset of a lot of people that come to paganism and heathenry but at the same point in time, it kind of works against us sometimes, uh, the the mentality of going it on our own or I've got to be the one in charge sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of – there are a, lo- a lot of little groups in heathenry mm-hmm. that do sometimes squabble with each other, um, often over a difference of opinions. And, and on one hand, the diversity is good, I think. But on the other hand, yeah, there are some things that we can definitely work together on. Um, it's just people are going to people. Mm, true. I think to a certain extent, though, you've made a seaworthy vessel. And, and some folks are going, oh, okay, it floats. It's going to get me from point A to point B. What more do we need to do with it? <laughs> you know, honestly, like sometimes I think about that, too. Because I think there's a... There's a problem or there can be a problem in our sort of, you know, culture of production Mm -hmm. where we have to keep improving or upgrading or doing more, doing better. And, you know, if it works, like, don't fix it. Or at least, you know, if depending on the thing, if it works, don't fix it. Because me, my goal with the longship was to create a beginner's resource. It is not meant to go past 101. If someone wants to make a 201 site, they are more than welcome to, and I will <laughs> happily help them out. But I'm I'm just one person, um, and I had one goal in mind, and I achieved it. And I don't think it's necessarily my responsibility to continue building it for the community as a single person. Yeah, that's kind of where I was getting to is like you know because you've mentioned it more than a few times about what a labor it was and having looked at the website, I can imagine. Um, and so I like that you're actually putting your foot down on that because, I mean, this was a year of your life that mm-hmm. just, and went into this website. And I would argue it's not just a year in your life if you're, if you're being really honest about it. It's probably all the experiences that allow you to speak to all this stuff and all the study you've had to do to actually be a heathen in the first place yeah, I, I could agree with that. And, you know, it, it my the, the time and, and the effort did not stop when I hit publish back in August or, yeah, it was August and it's April now. So it's been 
like eight months since then. And that's eight months of time and effort that I have since put into it um, on top of the year actually building it and on top of all the experience, you know, in, in my growth in heathenry, basically, and even my growth as a, as a pagan before heathenry um, that has gone into it. So, and like I said, I, I still continue, or I still plan to continue working on it just in other ways and all that time and effort. So I can only do so much. I'm only one, one woman. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, recording all of that is not going to, isn't going to be easy either. And recording, compiling, putting it into a format people can access. That's that's work. Mm. That's a whole job on its own. Yeah, and I know I'm actually not giving myself any scheduler deadline for it, which is probably going to be my saving grace. <laughs> um, because I, if, if there's one thing I learned about writing uh, blog posts um, twice a month, it's that it is a lot more work than it looks. Right? Yeah, that's the exact same problem that uh, Sarath and I ran into for a while when we were podcasting, uh, is our our previous show, we were just on such a schedule, and it was so regimented, and after a couple years, we were kind of staring at each other with a little bit of burnout in our eyes, I think, so... I can just imagine that, wow. Yeah, it was every other week. It was every other week, and we had an hour. Every other week with a hard one-hour limit, and... uh, yeah, it was it was a little little tricky sometimes. I don't envy you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but we're having a lot of fun with it now. So, you know, and that's that's the th- key, I think. And I and it seems like with the long shift that you got a lot of enjoyment out of the process and probably learned a lot about yourself and your interaction with your your faith along the way. Absolutely. And I will say that over the the year that I worked in the longship, my heathenry, like I have grown as a heathen. So the longship actually was revised several times before, you know, its final release date. And, and um, it was an experience in itself, just like realizing, okay, well, this I had wrong, you know, like mm-hmm. I did not understand it fully. Okay, so now I can update it to say this instead. And it was it sort of tracked my growth a little bit. And it was really cool to to experience firsthand. Yeah, nothing will nothing will make you learn like teaching. Yep. Yep. It'll force me nothing. to actually read my books, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you're 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 incorporating more of the the Roman aspects. Where you know, long ship aside, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you see yourself going in the next few years? Do you have any ideas of where your heathenry might take you, or or what your your faith might look like, or is it just going to be kind of a surprise, whatever the gods hand you. You know, um, my plan uh, is that I study more about Roman polytheism. And this year I've started to incorporate some holidays just to get a feel for it and see, you know, um, how feasible it is practically. Um, and also to sort of explore the Roman gods a little bit more and see if there are any others that I might include in my hearth cult. Um and I, I honestly don't see that changing anytime soon beyond uh, ex- a little bit of expansion. Heathenry is still my main uh, – it, what in, it's what informs my worldview. Mm-hmm. And so I will always consider myself a heathen uh, before a Roman polytheist. There are some things about Roman polytheist theology that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and because of that, I'm just sort of incorporating aspects that fill in the gaps that heathenry unfortunately has. Um but, you know, like, I would never have thought that I would be in this spot back when I was comedic. 
And I've never have thought I would be comedic back when I was like 13 years old. Right. So <laughs> it's one of those things where I can have an idea and in, in a plan for the next year, but I there's no way I will be able to to say for with certainty, with any level of certainty, that's what's going to actually happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, see here, and I thought Tears Folk were supposed to be these solid people who knew exactly where their feet were. I thought it was the Loki people who were supposed to not know where their feet were landing next. Look, we're only human, guys. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same with um with my death midwifery. Um, there was no way back when I was a college student that I thought I would be interested in death, death culture, and death positivity, um, like I am now. You know, back then I thought, oh, like skulls are, you know, really super cheesy. Like, <laughs> you know, like what kind of what kind of nerd has that like likes them as a symbol? And I'm just like skulls. Give me all the skulls. <laughs> <laughs> Even my fiance is like, look, it has a skull in it. Do you like that one? <laughs> nice. So, you know, it's just like one of those things where life throws these weird, weird curveballs at you and you have no idea where it came from. And all of a sudden, like you're knees deep into it and you're you know, attending a class, like a weekend course on how to be trained to take care of dead bodies. And you're like, oh, it was you, Anubis, all along. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't see that one coming. That was not in my high school paper on what my career path was going to be like, I have to tell you. Right? You know, people, employers ask you what your five-year plan is, and you're like, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to... I'd like to survive. Can you give me a job to help me do that? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. We're back to that corporate environment. The look on the person's face when you're telling them, "Well, so the death gods told me I've got to help uh, take care of some dead bodies, and uh, and uh, you know, you know, we're helping some people pass over to the other side, and then and then maybe nip down to the Starbucks." And they're like, "Yeah, that'd be like the end of interview. We're done. Get out of here." <laughs> Actually, it was really funny because um, my my office does this thing where you know every year. You have a meeting with your boss, a review, and then they ask you how, like, how they can help you further your career. I think it's pretty standard for most companies, especially big ones. And while my boss uh, was phrasing his question like, you know, if you had an ideal job, like, what would you want to be? Like, you know, or what do you want to be when you grow up? And I only <laughs> learned about this question because my coworkers had already had their meetings. And for a while, I was like, should I just say, like, I want to be a death midwife, like, <laughs> as my career, like, you know, ideal career path. <laughs> but I, I never said that. But it was it was definitely something I was, like, c- definitely considering. <laughs> For being a – now, I, I've obviously – well, maybe not obviously, but I've, I've never had the opportunity to be a death midwife or done any of that training sort of thing. And obviously, I can't ask you to go into a lot of details, but what – is an experience like for you or really kind of what I'm curious about is what was that first experience like for you? Was that really overwhelming? Was it very comforting? How did that, how, how does this process go for you? Um, are you asking about, uh, being a death midwife for a family who is in the process or, or, um, someone who's in the process of dying? Yeah, Like your experiences with it, what it was like for you to be the facilitator and the midwife in this process. Okay. Uh, so I will be completely honest here. Um, I do not have that experience. Okay. Because That's fine. Um, I was, I received the training in November, 2017. 
And uh, since then, I've received a few emails with mm -hmm. questions like, you know, how should I go about preparing for my death? What is the greenest option for me uh, if I want to be buried? You know, like I live in, you know, X state, like what are some green funeral homes or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, and I've answered those questions as best as I could with the training that I received. But um, it's very it's a very niche um, like job, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and. I am not in a place in my life right now where I think I can apprentice myself to any of the, you know, small, it's basically a small business kind of job. Right, right. Um, and I don't think I'm in a place where I can apprentice myself to any of those uh, individuals or I thought about volunteering at a, a hospice and mm -hmm. that's still on my to-do list of things I could possibly do. But life has a way of just keeping you busy. Oh, I understand completely. And that's a, you know, that's a fine answer. That's a perfectly acceptable answer because we've all been there in our various paths and our commitments and that sort of thing. I was telling someone the other day that um, there are times when if I can manage to get up in the morning and put some of my jewelry on and, and remember to be thankful for a few minutes, that might be all I can get done. And I got to call that good enough. Right, exactly. And um, it's sort of like I thought I knew what my plan was for the year, but then I got engaged and now I'm like, well, I got to plan a wedding. And so it's like I, all my, all, everything that I thought has to be put on hold and for a good reason, for a very awesome reason. Uh, but, you know, y you can only plan so much and then life has a way of just saying, nope. <laughs> So if you don't mind me asking, um, kind of jumping this back into the spiritual focus, um, because your your life has taken so many different twists and turns, how do you relate to concepts like predetermination, luck, and that kind of thing? Because I I mean we can we can read the articles, but that doesn't tell us about your perspective because that, I find that really fascinating listening to other folks and their perspectives on that. Sure. So I personally don't believe in predestination. I think that word does not mean predestination or fate like a lot of people misunderstand it to. Um, it, it's super complex, and my only explanation will be read the website <laughs> because I think that is a great explanation <laughs> that I put a lot of time into. <laughs> but uh, it, me personally, I don't think um, that word encompasses sort of a, a pre predestination for people. I don't think that our fates are written I think that our fates are, our fate is the wrong word even to use in this conversation. I think that our lives are guided uh, by what could be available to us and our actions sort of narrow those choices down and give us a, the next set of limited options. So, you know, there is a sense of free will. There is a sense of, of owning, you know, your life and being in charge of it. But I was born in America um, and, or actually this is an even better, um, uh, uh, example. I am Filipino, you know, my parents are from there and my, their parents and, and their parents, I am never going to be like African, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, in, in the ethnic sense, like, um, I'm never going to be Caucasian. So like that, that possibility, like it's just not open for me. Like that's, that's it. Period. Um, I'm going to be Filipino for the rest of my life. And that's my, uh, Orlog basically saying like, 
this is where you're limited. But at the same time, it says, okay, you're American, but you could always move to Europe and get nationality there if you really tried really hard. Or you could change your name if you want to sign a piece of paper and pay some money, you know? Um, so I, th I think the people who misinterpret word as uh, like fate mm -hmm. have it wrong. <laughs> it's just put it to put it plainly. But they could argue they could argue their their point. You know, they could argue their perspective and say, okay, well, I think it does because X, Y, Z, and that's that's up to them. Mm -hmm. So you're you're Filipino and you have an ancestral worship uh, or, or work. I have to ask, is there ever any blowback from the, from the ancestors about the, the path that you're taking or has it gone fairly smoothly? I mean, I ask because for me, it's gone fairly smooth no matter what, but I have acquaintances that have had a little bit of trouble here and there, you know, whether, whether it's you're not Catholic anymore or, Hey, those weren't our people. What are you doing over there? Sort of thing. Well, my ancestors, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, have been pretty good about the whole thing. In fact, I think that um, the ancient Filipinos did have ancestor worship as part of their culture. But when Catholicism took over, that kind of basically vanished. So I think, if anything, my ancestors are just happy to be recognized again. Oh, right. Yep. I agree. That makes total sense. I do agree. And yeah. I do... I do I do worship them in the sort of uh, within the heathen ritual context, but mm -hmm. the way I've decorated their side of the altar is fairly Filipino. Um, in fact, the main focus of the altar is a uh, resin crocodile skull replica, and um, specifically, I specifically chose the crocodile because in ancient Filipino culture, the crocodile was the representative of the ancestor collective. So you know oh, wow. when yeah, so when fishermen would go and you know go work in the rivers and stuff to collect fish, they would offer their first, first of their catch to crocodiles, you know, as a, as a way of acknowledging, like, thank you for the bounty. Thank you for the protection. Like, you know, thank you. So that's, that's badass. Yeah. So, that, is, that is really cool. So yeah, the crocodile is actually a really important um, animal spirit to me just because of the, the connection that I have through it to um, my ancient peoples. I bet those windowsills are just gorgeous with all that stuff laid out on them. I, I love pictures of people's altars or, or looking at them and that sort of thing. Cause I always find it so fascinating the way things mix together. It's just such a, a, a kaleidoscope of, of, of different influences and energies. It, 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 the way it comes together, a mandala probably is a better way of looking at it, but they're always so beautiful. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, um, to bring this back to the longship for a second, um, I think that it can kind of be paralyzing for beginners to heathenry, mm -hmm. you know, thinking, oh, what goes on my altar? You know, like, what should I have on it? I only have this much. Like, is oh, it OK? Yeah. Is it enough? And so part of the Heathens in Profile series that, um, you know, I publish monthly is, uh, you know, people showcasing their altars and mm -hmm. having that variety of of worship places uh online that people can peruse uh is really beneficial to newcomers because then they can say okay well mine looks like that one so it should be okay or like oh i really like the look of that one maybe you know i can go to the store this weekend and pick up something similar or oh that's my dream altar i should work towards it or something like that 
Yeah, I agree. They come in, in, in such varieties of where the material will come from and, and what has a significance, too. You know, like, it's not always about having the most expensive item. That's definitely not the point. Or having this huge collection. But what connects really well to you? You know, on my, my ancestor altar, I've got this. When my, when my grandfather on my mother's side was... was getting older and a little bit ill he had dentures but he loved nuts and he couldn't have them otherwise so there was this little grinder my grandmother got that thing sits on the ancestor altar and people are like what the (laughs) hell is that no no it fits if i ever want to give him something like that i have to have that grinder up there that's the way it goes that's really adorable it's all what connects and resonates with us you know that's the important part your first your first altar to thor might be nothing more than a cloth and a inexpensive hammer that you bought at a surplus store it does not have to be these huge things with furs and skins and torches and all these other things you know it might be if that's what really feels right to you but don't be intimidated by that sort of visualization to think you can't even start the process Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another big question is, oh, you know, I can't afford to get this really nice carving of Odin on Etsy or whatever. And people say, what can I do instead? It's like, just print out a picture and put it in a picture frame. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's that's good enough. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that's really good information for a lot of people starting these paths, because and the the thing goes as well, too. and, And I'm sure you can recognize it especially as your your knowledge base increases when you have a certain body of knowledge and a certain level of practice people kind of assume that you're always like that or you've always been there they don't know about our first few awkward days and the first stupid rituals we did and how we mispronounced everything and you know what i mean like that was there for us too it's it's a process it's a living breathing process yeah, actually, I totally agree. And I think that transparency is really important. It's why we have, it's why I encourage, like, I run a Discord server for heathenry called Skithblathnir. And the main point of it is uh, to be a place where heathens can connect, converse, and learn from each other. So it's really beneficial for new heathens to come and join the server and talk with people who are more experienced, who have more years under their belt and hear us say like, yeah, my first ritual sucked. I stuttered. I didn't know what to say. And I felt stupid afterward. Like I was talking to myself. (laughs) It's okay to feel that way and it will change the more you do it. So it's really, really reassuring for them. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and like you were yeah. saying, with the with the creation of the longship in general, you you know you come back to things later on. You know you'll go back to your old notes after you've been around for a few years and experienced for things. You go, oh, what was I thinking on that one? You know, and it's like how you were saying the process of of creating that website. You start that studying process, and you come back, and your understanding is much different. It's always changing. Yeah, absolutely. So, kind of taking this and and rolling with it. Um, with the development of, of the practice, what things have you seen change just in the time you've been a heathen that eventually made it into the longship content? What really kind of drew you um, into that? And what's kind of snowballed into the, into the longship from that? Are there, are there things that you've done like uh, that came out during your process of making the longship that you went, okay, this entire process over here has to be changed or I have to revise how I've been doing this because 
well, this doesn't fit anymore. <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, so I started the longship during a time when I mainly learned about Heathen Ray through Reddit and uh, certain Facebook groups. Um, and there was a certain idea of what heathenry is and what it looks like espoused uh, in those communities. But it didn't feel 100% right for me. Uh, I didn't agree with it. I mean, it's hard to agree 100% with anything in, in, you know, paganism in general, in the various pagan communities. Um, but I was having a hard time practicing regularly. Uh, I felt like um, there was something missing. And then uh, I would say maybe about a, uh, six months into working on the longship, I started to read the blog uh, of Axon Plow, which is run by my good friend Mark. And he had a blog post about freehold heathenry, which is basically an emphasis on the, the hearth and the hearth practice. Uh, and then instead of forming like a kindred or something like that, um, the hearths would come together to practice uh, group rituals to celebrate in, in a group, but not necessarily have that sort of um, kinship tie that, that sort of, you know, a, a kindred has the connotation of. Um, and so each hearth could still be there, its own independent thing. Not only that, but uh, Mark's blog continued to say, you know, a hearth doesn't have to be like a family. It can just be you or it can be you and your roommate. Um, and I think that really sort of opened up heathenry to me as, as something much more accessible because I'm in a place that um, I don't really connect with the heathens here. They're great people. They're really nice people. But it's just not um, a community that I am interested in joining at, at this time. I'm okay practicing on my own. Um, but it, I, I required, you know, I had to read that blog post in order to realize, okay, I can practice on my own. It's totally cool. And then I looked at the longship and I was like, you know what? I think that is a really important thing that I need to share with new heathens. That it's okay if you're on your own. Some new heathens are like isolated completely from others, you know, mm -hmm. miles of Christianity or whatever. So to them hearing things like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta find a kindred. Like I've got to find a group, you know, it's mandatory. Um, can be really, it can be challenging, especially if they're young. Um, so I looked at the longship and I thought I need to include some kind of information that will enable anybody, no matter where they live or, you know, who's nearby to start a practice. And that's why I created the hearth cult guide um, on the longship that you'll, you'll find there. That's fabulous. Um, so is there any other information that you would like people to take away from this? Um, and if they want to get a hold of you and, and do work for the, for the longship, or if they'd like to point somebody out for the blog, um, and things like that, is there a way that they can get a hold of you? Yes. Uh, so I am on Instagram and Twitter at the Barrow Home. And my personal website is also thebarrowhome.com if you care. But, you know, please go to thelongship.net also. Um, and if, uh, if you want to contact me in longship terms, there's a contact form on the website. But you can also email hello.thelongship at gmail.com. Um, and I mean, you can also send me a message on Twitter or Instagram. What are your, what is the uh, Twitter handle they should look for? 
Uh, it's at the Barrow Home. B. It's T H E B A R R O W H O M E. Awesome. And I think it's the same for the Instagram, right? Yes, correct. It's the okay. same. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. You have a fantastic website with a, with really a lot of really well-written articles on it. And we hope to get the word out so you can have more people enjoy your hard work. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. You guys are great. And I had fun this whole time.